0: From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind, mind. welcome
1: to From the Void. It's difficult to imagine a time when airport security wasn't what it is today. That pre-9-11 era where you could walk right up to the gate and wave goodbye to loved ones, or just give the person at the ticket counter any old name to put on your ticket. But this was the case back in 1971, when a mysterious man going by the name Dan Cooper approached the counter of Northwest Orient Airlines in Portland, Oregon, and using cash purchased a one-way ticket to Seattle, Washington. This would set off a chain of events that would result in the only unsolved case of air piracy in U.S. history. The mysterious man that went by the alias of Dan Cooper would disappear into the night, along with $200,000 in ransom money, never to be seen again. This week, I welcome my guest, author and researcher, Tom Sullivan, to talk about his book, Escape at 10,000 Feet, D.B. Cooper and the Missing Money. Welcome to From the Void. Tom Sullivan, thank you so much for uh, spending some time uh, with me on the show today.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. So, So tell people a little bit about your background and how you got interested in the topic of D.B. Cooper.
0: Yeah. So I am an author illustrator. I've written and illustrated three different picture books for children. And I was kind of looking for my next idea. And I originally actually pitched this book as a picture book. But my agent and I kind of realized like this is way too big to be like a 32 page picture, book. also the subject matter is a little, a little more mature <laughs> than the, the picture book audience. Um, so my agent, Steve Mock was actually the one that came up with the idea that I should just kind of expand it into just this much larger format um, than we had been used to working in. And it's just, it was just awesome. Like I loved working on this book and it's just kind of opened my eyes to just different kinds of books to, to make going forward.
1: Yeah, it's it's one of those really interesting topics uh out there. I would say up there with like the uh, the escape from Alcatraz and stuff like that because yeah. we live in a world now with with technology where there just aren't that many unsolved mysteries like this anymore. So, no. uh, <laughs> <laughs> not at all,
0: right?
1: Yeah, so so tell people a little bit um set set the background first of all because one of the interesting aspects of this uh case, this mystery is the fact that there's no way anyone could pull this off now based on current airport protocol. So when, when did this take place and kind of what were the airport protocols at that point that allowed this, this guy to get. So
0: 1971, it's pretty much like if you walked into an airport, you could bring and do just about anything you wanted. Um, There was no metal detectors, no real passenger screenings. You didn't need an ID to buy a ticket. Uh, This guy bought his ticket with $20 cash Um, so just untraceable Um, you could give them any name you wanted he chose Dan Cooper who knows why Um, we'll never really know the answer to that Um, but yeah I mean this case it actually changed air support security as we know it they implemented metal detectors and screenings Uh, the Boeing 727 had to be modified uh, because they realized oh geez like you know a hijacker could just (laughs) open up this door mid-flight And, you know, um, yeah, it it really is just like this fascinating case because it's it reads so much like a a pulpy story from the 70s, you know, Um, just hijacking, getting the cash and parachutes. And it's like something out of a movie. Um, Stranger than fiction. like To a T.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So talk about where. So what airport did he did he board this flight and where was right. he going?
0: So he went into the Portland international airport, Portland, Oregon, and he was headed to Seattle, Washington, which sounds like I, I've never flown that route, but it sounds like it's a commuter route, you know, like a 30 minute flight, um, just there back. And something like around here, Boston to New York, people fly Boston to New York all the time. And it's like, you, you kind of blink through it. Um, yeah. I think, are you still there? It looks like my might yeah. lost you on my end. Okay, sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no, no worries. Uh, so, so he gets on this plane and he's, he's definitely got a very specific uh, description based on the witnesses. So what does mm-hmm. what he dress like and how is he acting when he first gets on board?
0: Yeah, so very casual, uh, black suit, black overcoat, brown loafers, uh, briefcase. Like Looks like a businessman just going up to Seattle to do whatever he has to do. Um, gets on board, hands the flight attendant a note, informing her that he has a set of demands and he'd like her to sit next to him and that he has a bomb. Uh, he tells her what he wants and then he puts on sunglasses. So she's really kind of one of the only people that got like a look at his face for any sort of prolonged period of time. Like if you're if you're on an airplane, people walk by you all the time. I don't know how much you pay attention or what you might recognize about somebody. Um, so it, it's really just very interesting, um, you know, how he did this, like, it's like, what's the motivation behind something like that? Um, cause it's such a daring and ballsy move to jump out of an airplane with $200,000 worth of cash and hope that you're just going to land and go back about your day, you know?
1: Yeah. And it's not as if he's jumping out of You know, like the typical airplane that we see when people are are doing skydives. He's jumping out of a commercial aircraft. Yeah, a
0: commercial aircraft going at, you know, pretty high speeds, 10,000 feet, um, which I guess is... I don't know too much about actual skydiving. I've never done it. But, um, you know, typically a commercial flight is at 30,000 feet. So that would have been a pretty insane jump. Uh, But 10,000 feet sounds like it's more manageable, I guess. I don't know.
1: (laughs) Yeah so what's so he he gives this uh note over and says you know he's got a I think he says he has a bomb right and yep. and that he has this list of demand so uh, he he so he demands two things right he de- demands as you said two hundred thousand dollars in cash, which is like somewhere in the in the range of I think one point two or one point three million today, yeah based off of inflation, and he demands parachutes but he demands four parachutes like yep. what what, what's the motivation behind that? Like, he's one guy, right? Yeah. You should only need one parachute. So what's...
0: So I what guess... In your research, yeah. What he was thinking there, so two front, two back. Um, a front parachute sounds like it's a reserve chute, like uh, you would use it in an emergency. And the back parachute's the big backpack. Um, so yeah, why four in case maybe that he thought they were tampered with and he was going to inspect them? or if he knew that he just wanted to utilize some of the nylon cord from one of them. Um, Or it could have just been as simple as, um, you know, like making sure that they're paying attention and listening to him and and following his demands, kind of like, uh, you know, there's a story back in the day, I think it was Led Zeppelin or something, On one of their riders had the the no brown M&Ms. And it wasn't that they cared about brown M&Ms. It was like if they put this small detail on their tour rider and they go to the arena and they have no brown M&Ms, then I'm sure all the electrical and the lighting and the the sound equipment is working as well. So it's just kind of like a little trick to make sure people are paying attention.
1: Yeah, interesting. The The other weird or kind of fascinating thing about his demand for parachutes is that initially... I believe they offer him kind of military grade parachutes and he's like, no, I want. Yeah. So he thought yeah.
0: that was probably tampered with, I think. Um, and then requested them from the nearby skydiving school.
1: Um, Interesting.
0: But there, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's some gray areas with those parachutes. Like why did he choose those particular parachutes? If he was experienced, um, you know, I read somewhere that, so one of the, Reserve chutes had a big X on it, and that meant that it was just like a, uh, a dummy, like it was there to show you what the chute looked like. And they kind of threw that in the pack of four, and he didn't know. Um, and then the back parachute, um, the MB 88, eight, you weren't, uh, you didn't have the ability to steer that chute. So if you jump out of a, an airplane, you know, you see skydivers, they're pulling on their tube levers and the maneuvering, and I think. With the NBA, you're kind of just at the mercy of the wind, um, but they would use that in ejections. So, you know, other people say that the NBA would have been the better parachute because 10,000 feet, it's dark eight, after you know after eight o'clock at night. Um, you just kind of let the wind take you, and that that'll be better than trying to steer your way towards. I mean, you're you're in the middle of nowhere where he jumps, so. I don't even know what you would be steering yourself towards if you jumped there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And that's, and that's something that's become problematic for people attempting to figure out if this guy actually survived the landing and where he landed because the search parameters, like they just, they really have a huge range, you know, to search. Right.
0: And it's like a lot of just like they're like logging roads, but a lot of just kind of empty forests. you know, and um you know i know people have gone up there searching and someone found a shoot a few years ago that was around the same era and it was like oh no that's just this missing skydiver that no one else found you know like so stuff just kind of is sitting out there waiting to be found it's just a, a matter of going out there and actually locating it
1: yeah so so talk about that as uh, that that you know part of the trip so he gets he hijacks this plane he he gives very specific directions and instructions to the pilots uh he's flying you know as you said they they kind of lowered the plane down to a to a lower uh altitude Mm -hmm. so he appeared as if he had a particular spot where he knew he was going to jump like this obviously was very premeditated um yeah
0: so, Um. so
1: where does he yeah where does he jump and and as you mentioned the other part part of it was that kind of created some additional risk was this is at nighttime this is in the in the dark oh the yeah night.
0: uh so his original plan was to go to mexico city like every criminal on the west coast get to mexico <laughs> um but the pilots you know informed like they don't have enough fuel to go seattle to mexico you probably need a bigger plane than the boeing 727 um so they come up with this compromise to land and refuel in reno and he probably figured the Feds are going to be waiting in Reno. Uh, there's, you know, he already got out of Seattle unscathed. Like The likelihood of him landing and refueling in Reno without who a SWAT team boarding the plane or anything like that was highly unlikely, I think he figured. So he just jumped. I think it was around 30 minutes after they left Seattle. He just kind of hopped out. I, I don't know if it was calculated or if it was like, okay, I think I'm far enough away. But let's see what happens.
1: And it, there does seem to be some indication that he had some familiarity with, with airplanes because he does, there's at one point, it sounds like he gets into this kind of debate with, with the hostage nego- n- negotiators or the airlines at the very least in terms of like, cause he, he tells them, I think he gives them instructions, right. To, uh, uh, to keep the, the back of the airplane open, the back, um, mm-hmm. the aft door or whatever, and, and keep the staircase down so that he can jump. And they keep saying it's not safe. And he's like, yes, it is. Yeah.
0: Um, So yeah, so he wanted to lower it... He wanted to have the flight attendant lower it like mid-flight, I think. And and they were like, no way. Uh, She was afraid of getting sucked out of the plane like you see in movies and stuff. Um, So they compromised and had it so that that they lowered the door right before takeoff. So he took off with the door door open and the stairs down. Uh, And then the flight attendant, she got into the cockpit and then she never left. Um, So... That whole time they leave Seattle, it's just him in the body of the plane. Um, and you know we don't know what he was doing, what he was thinking, what uh, what else transcribed in that you know time period between takeoff and then the jump. All the pilots know is that they felt a bump um, around I forget what time exactly it was, 810 or something like that. Um, which would have been, you know, similar to like when someone goes off a diving board at a pool. You kind of feel that vibration of the the kickback, and yeah, that's really like <laughs> the only concrete, you know, thing we know about it is that that's about when he jumped. But what he did up until that point—did he throw the bomb out? Did he jump with the bomb? Uh,
1: who knows? And that's really interesting too, because. Because of the fact that the flight attendant didn't feel comfortable back there, and the fact that she goes up into the cockpit, as you said, like, no one's keeping an eye on what he's up to. You know, is he messing with the parachutes back there, trying to set some as decoys? Like, nobody really knows what he's up to, and no one actually sees him jump, right? Like, the pilots have said they couldn't see because it's dark, but they Mm -hmm. couldn't see a parachute open. They saw nothing.
0: Yeah, no, and of course on an airplane there's no rear-view, side-view mirrors or anything like that. <laughs> right. Uh, so you have no idea what's going to happen in the back of your plane. Um, But they did think that, uh, you know, they they thoroughly searched the plane in case he did happen to try and fake it. Uh, you know, there was no way that he landed in Reno, like, hiding under a seat and then kind of scampered out and, uh, or dressed like security guard or something like that crazy and cockamamie like that um
1: no way like he definitely jumped off that plane wow so he so he jumps the 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 plane lands obviously they're they're reporting descriptions and as much detail as they can to law enforcement at this point where does law enforcement begin the search because obviously they're trying to go after this guy they've they've uh recorded all the serial numbers on the money mm-hmm. that was given to him and, and taking all these precautions. So where do they begin the search at that point?
0: I think they just start right out there in the woods. Like they kind of, they look at a map, they don't have an exact flight path, but these pilots, like they've been doing this, you know, pre-technology. This is 1971. So I would trust that they had like a a decent idea of where they were. Um, this is a route that they have probably flown many times. Um, so they go based off this hand-drawn map and just kind of fan out, it's FBI, it's state, it's sheriff, it's local police. It's, it's volunteers. It's like anybody that, you know, they can get their hands on. And there's also the um, possibility of a reward almost instantly. So I think they were giving away $15,000 right away. It was like, you know, if you find this guy worth the money. So and $15,000 wow. is, is a lot of money today. So 15,000 in 1971, is that's a nice chunk of change.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's. I think it's important to note too that the FBI was, you know, the law enforcement agency involved because this is a hijacking of a, you know, of, a, yeah. of an airplane. So this is a federal offense.
0: Yep, uh, I think they they looped the FBI in right away just because you know back then too hijacking was so commonplace that it was like you know probably there was a protocol to it. It was like oh, okay you know we're being hijacked today call the FBI you know it wasn't like this panic I think it was just so common for these criminals to hijack planes and try to get to Cuba around then. Um, so he actually says to the flight attendant, you know, don't worry, we're not going to Havana at one point. Um, wow. Yeah. Just so casual, right? Like something Yeah. just out of a movie.
1: That's so crazy. So, and he does leave some evidence behind, uh, yes. is my understanding. He leaves like his tie and, and what else behind?
0: Uh, so his, he takes the tie off uh, clip on tie, right? Like, uh, how uncool is that <laughs> uh clip on tie and then there were cigarette butts in the ashtray of the the plane uh which used to be right in the chair there and uh and then hairs but they, they're not conclusive if these human hairs are actually his or not um like we said earlier this was like a commuter flight so the, these planes have quick turnaround times um, and then at, in the evening, the night before Thanksgiving, like there's a lot of people coming and going off that airplane throughout the day, so it could be his hair, it could be someone else's. That's why none of the DNA evidence has ever been conclusive. Um, they also found some fingertips that were, or fingerprints, not fingertips, uh, <laughs> fingerprints that were left on his. Uh, he left his ticket on the plane too.
1: And maybe this is wrong i i I swear i remember seeing this on a show at some point but didn't he also order a drink or something while he was on the flight as well first
0: thing he did yeah as soon as he got on he (laughs) he ordered a bourbon and soda um and then gave his demands like he he had his demands written on a note and kind of handed it to the stewardess as she handed him his drink
1: that's insane so so
0: obviously (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: I mean, he seemed pretty calm, cool, and collected. Like he had, like he wasn't a first-time criminal, and so, and yeah. we'll get to obviously like suspects and things like that. But obviously, in the in the uh, era before DNA testing and and things like that, did they keep? Do you know? Did they keep any of this evidence? behind? did they keep the cigarette butts? Did they keep uh, the glass? Did they keep the tie?
0: Oh, so they have the tie. Um, they do have that. Um, the cigarette butts, I think, were lost in. Uh, transport somewhere, or just kind of, you know, they were collected, and then maybe back then they didn't think they were that important because they didn't—they uh, probably didn't have the foresight to think, oh, maybe there's, you know, remnants of saliva DNA, and who knows. Um, but yeah, so I think today they have the tie, they have the parachute that he left on the plane because he cut one of the parachutes up for the for the cord. Um, and I think that might be about it. Um, like, I, I think, yeah, the hair samples and stuff like that have been lost. Oh, and they have the ticket. Of course, they have
1: the ticket. Yeah. So what about the uh, the tie had something, some sort of particles or, like, there was something they discovered on the tie, right? Yeah. Like what was that about? That's and have they made any headway with thing. that at all?
0: Um, not really. You know, it's it's led to theories, of course. So, yeah, there were like titanium fragments or something like that. Some kind of rare metal um, were on the tie. So it led some people to believe that maybe he worked at Boeing, leading again to the theory about familiarity with the plane and jumping out of the plane, but maybe not actually having ever done it. Um, You know, like this was a guy that maybe he read and planned the heck out of this mission or heist, whatever you want to call it. But had never actually done anything like it. But was just so mentally prepared that he was, you know, ready to go through it. So one of the theories is maybe he's an executive or a foreman at the Boeing plant, and that's that could explain why these little particles of metal were in the tie. How he knew about the door, you know, like the regular passenger doesn't know the ins and outs of a plane. Like I, I don't know where the doors are on the last plane I was on. You know, right? Um, yeah. But he had this immense familiarity with with the aircraft. Um, so he had definitely studied on it. Maybe he worked with aircraft. Uh, who knows? But yeah, one of the theories is that that came from some sort of a metal fabrication plant or something along those lines.
1: So that, I mean, that seems like sort of a helpful clue or at least a place for law enforcement to start and then yeah i know there were also some theories about potentially maybe a military background so what were some of the initial leads that the fbi followed
0: yeah definitely so the boeing 727 was used in vietnam um which was a, you know the height of the vietnam war was right around this time too so uh they were looking at vets and people that had used it and and some of their suspects um one in particular. Uh, what was I forget his first name, his last name was Christensen, Kevin or Ken or something like that, Christensen. And he was a flight attendant for Northwest Air, Airlines out of Minneapolis um, and a baggage handler or something like that. So in Vietnam, he had worked on the 727s, kind of throwing packages out the back of the plane with the stairs down while it was flying. Um, and he, he's a very compelling suspect, but there's a lot of evidence against him too, you know. Um no way to place him in the Pacific Northwest at the time of the incident. Um, I think one of the big factors was he had $200,000 in his bank account when he died, but they found out that he had just made investments and saved, and and the money all came from legitimate sources. It it wasn't this stolen marked money.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and one of the things, too, that's interesting is that, to their knowledge, none of this money... Uh, that was stolen was ever actually spent right so it kind of kind of leans towards the idea that maybe either he knew he couldn't spend it and and survived or just did not survive yeah i
0: mean yeah you would think that if he was you know prepared enough to pull this off that he would have used the money for something (laughs) he wouldn't have just done it buried it and called it a day just to, you know, commit this crime to see if he could do it, that seems like too outlandish for me.
1: Um, I think... Yeah, I, yeah. absolutely.
0: <laughs> you wouldn't just do this for fun, you know, right before Thanksgiving.
1: Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and so speaking of the money, so fast forward almost 10 years, 1980, yeah. there's a young boy who's in the woods and he recovers a portion of what they later found out was, you know, part of the money. Yeah. Uh, they, they were able to match serial numbers and it kind of deteriorated. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Talk
0: about a, like the coincidence to end all coincidences, right? Like he's out with his family. He's this eight year old kid. um, It goes to build a campfire to cook hot dogs or something. And just kind of brushes the sand aside of his hand. And there it is. Like he didn't really dig forward. It's not like he, you know, was out there looking for it, like just through pure happenstance, like found $5,800 sitting in the sand. As an eight year old kid, it's like, a, you know, something out of a Spielberg movie. Like you found this pirate's treasure or whatever. <laughs> yeah, It's crazy. It's crazy. Um, so yeah, so they find the money at, at Tina bar, which is this location off the Columbia river and they go and they dig and they search for more. And, and of course they come up and so it's, we have these, fifty eight hundred dollars that they found, but the rest of it is just vanished, gone. Uh, could be sitting out there. I mean if it if it's still out there in the woods, it's long deteriorated by now. Cause we saw how, you know, some of those bills were more than half gone and this would have only been whatever, eight or nine years um in between the hijacking and the and the find. So now tack on we're we're approaching like fifty years now. Like that,
1: that money would have been turned back into dirt, I think by now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what, what are some of the theories around the money that was located though? Cause it is kind of interesting that they found a portion of it and one would think that, you know, if they, if they searched the surrounding area that, you know, eventually they would recover the rest of it. If it's, if it's indeed there, so what are think, some of the yeah. theories that,
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so the two, uh, one is that the money landed in the in the Columbia River, and that during this dredging operation, it somehow wound up tossed back up on shore. But that has kind of been debunked by the fact that, you know, if it had been there pre-dredging, it would have been several feet underground, and if it happened during the dredging, like there's a very slim chance that paper money would survive the dredging process. Like in, when you dredge a riverbed, it, you use this cutter that cuts up the soil and then it sucks it up through a tube and then it goes through an impeller and goes back out through a discharge so a lot of paper money that's soaking wet would probably just it'd be like you know putting something in a blender you're just blasting this the smithereens um and then you know one of the curious ones Dwayne weber one of the suspects had, had been spotted out in tina bar so that's you know, definitely an angle that I think investigators looked at and they came up empty, but super strange that this guy who happens to be a suspect happened to be in this location around that time. Um, and yeah, was he just messing with people thinking, you know, maybe somebody will find this someday. And did he bury the other stuff? If he was in fact, uh, the culprit, you know, who, who knows, um, the inclusive DNA evidence doesn't, uh, line up with him. But again, it's, it's inconclusive. So it could be there. It's certainly like a super compelling angle to this case.
1: Yeah. So, so talk about that a little bit. So we've got, so based on the evidence that we do have, we've got eyewitness descriptions, we've got this infamous sketch Mm -hmm. uh, of the suspect. We've got, you know, potential fingerprints. We've got the tie beyond that we really there's not a whole lot else beyond that and so we've it's almost become it's taken on this kind of mythological uh story now and oh, so yeah. who are so who are some of the suspects because over the past 50 years there's certainly been a number of alleged deathbed confessions yeah. and family members and friends pointing fingers so who are in your opinion who are some of the best you know Fifty years later, who are still some of the best suspects for this?
0: Um, You know, Weber is definitely compelling because of that whole Tina Bar visit. Um, I think my personal favorite, who it probably was not him because he was, excuse me, so much more successful, was Richard McCoy. Um, So McCoy pulled this stunt off like a year or six months or whatever after Cooper got five hundred grand and got away with it. And he was an experienced Green Beret in Vietnam. He had packed his own. Uh, parachute suit and he got a helmet. He hijacked a plane with a, like a fake grenade and a gun and just way more precise, you know. And, and he actually got the money, jumped out, and they found him two days later. Um, but he doesn't line up because he was only like 26. So you're not going to confuse a 26 year old with somebody in their mid 40s, uh, right? Unless that 26 year old has done some hard living, <laughs> but it's it's pretty <laughs> unlikely. Um, And then it's interesting that there are two sketches, and these two sketches are pretty different. Um, And that goes back to, you know, when you're a kid playing the telephone game. You know, 10 people witness one event, 10 people have 10 different stories about that event. Um, And how do you know which one's correct, what to follow? And that's what's been so tricky for law enforcement, I think, with this case, is that, you know, based off... Just I I don't know exactly where they came up with the sketch. Was that based off the flight attendant's description or passenger on the plane's description, etc.? Who did it? Was it Seattle police? Was it FBI? I'm not positive. There's not like a whole lot of information about that. But they are pretty different. And some people do fit the description when you look at these photos of these suspects. Some people look like dead ringers for that composite sketch. And other people don't look like it at all. Um, and you really can't trust those things, I guess. You know, um,
1: right? I'm right. actually
0: working on a book now about the Isabella Stewart Gardner case, and in that one, they had you know sketches of these thieves, and the person uh, who was a security guard from the museum who provided the description for the sketch was just like, "This is terrible." So if your one witness doesn't <laughs> think the sketch looks like the guy. um What's going to yeah. happen when you have 30 plus people giving input? Um, yeah. I mean, being a sketch artist has got to be probably one of the hardest jobs. As someone who's an illustrator and an artist, I don't, I don't know how they do it. Um, it's
1: it's yeah, definitely it's, a, a,
0: <laughs> an, in, an interesting and unique skill.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and we see that with other cases too, there's, there's a couple different sketches for even like the Zodiac, you Mm -hmm. know, where same thing, certain people, certain suspects over time just nail it. You know, they look exactly like it. Big disparities between height
0: and weight and appearance.
1: Hair color. Yeah. Yeah. It's just,
0: it's crazy.
1: And that obviously makes it, you know, tremendously difficult, um, you know, over, over the period of time. But it seems though that one of the, the good byproducts of of time kind of going by is that we have been able to at least eliminate it seems some of the initial suspects and kind of maybe narrow the list down a little bit at least
0: yeah um i think most of them at least that i've read about have kind of been eliminated every once in a while a new story pops up but i feel like with time and they just get more and more outlandish and more far-fetched than than what they could be um I think, you know, uh, there was the, uh, the FBI agent uh, most recently on the case. Wow, well, what was his name? I'm forgetting his name. Um, uh, Carr, Agent Carr, Larry Carr. So he came up with the theory that um, Cooper was perhaps Canadian, and specifically French Canadian, based on they found this old comic book called Dan Cooper that was a French comic uh, that had never been translated into English and he was a paratrooper in the Royal Navy. Um, And then the flight attendants have noted that the man had like no distinguishable accent um, whatsoever, Mm. which is common for that kind of French-Canadian region um, of Montreal, Quebec. So, I mean, I think that's a plausible route. Someone that kind of just went to another part of the country, um, other side of the continent, and pulled off this crime and then went back and maybe lived to tell about it and didn't spend the money for whatever reason. Who knows? But that's certainly a very plausible idea because a lot of the people that, um, you know, were, were initial suspects, these are like ex-cons and military guys and, and just little things just didn't add up. Like why would, you know, Richard McCoy, who was a, army ranger in his 20s have these metal particles in his plane and his uh in his uh, tie it just doesn't add up um so
1: i don't know yeah <laughs> that i have heard that theory that's that's really interesting you know some of the some of the details because it kind of goes back to why specifically did he choose that name yeah. which by the way dan cooper was actually what he what he put on the registry right Mm -hmm. it wasn't db it was kind of a uh media yeah uh, media screw up that
0: that they just ran with um and you know how that happens like the media it all spread like wildfire so they just kind of took db cooper and then yeah try and correct that now oh no it's it's actually dan cooper like no he's he's db cooper for the rest of existence (laughs) you know
1: That's kind of a big detail though, right? Like if you're trying to investigate and solve this mystery, it's like, you know, if it's actually Dan Cooper, then that's kind of the lead we should be following. Like why, what's the, is there a significance behind why he chose that particular alias, you know, and kind of following that thread?
0: Um, I mean, it's crazy that, yeah, like, you know, like you're saying, like that is a big mess up and Carr came up with that theory. That, That was maybe the early 2000s that he he made that connection between the French comic and the name Dan Cooper. Like, they weren't looking into that in 1971, 72, which, I don't know, maybe it could have led to something back then. Um, But now, all all those kind of leads are dried up. Um, I think there was one of the suspects, I forget his name, but the daughter or the niece, like, swears she remembers seeing this comic like on his wall or something. Um, But again, like, the a child's memory
1: can be pretty distorted over time. Yeah. So like kind of my last question is, you know, here we are 2021, you know, this is, uh, this is for the longest time, been one of the most fascinating unsolved mysteries. And Mm -hmm. it's still to this day, the only act of air piracy that's gone unsolved. Yes. Um, Have they made any progress or are we still kind of in the same place we were back in 1971?
0: I think we're we're in the same place. Uh, like I yeah. said, you know, every few years there's a new theory, a new article that comes out, but with time they just get more and more far fetched. Um, yeah. And this, I mean, if he was alive, this guy's in like his mid nineties now, um, so he's probably not telling anybody unless he's on his deathbed. And then again, you get into the whole thing like you can't trust these deathbed confessions. It's such a strange phenomenon that people will confess to crimes that they never committed. I, I you know I tried to research that a little bit and it, it, that's opening up a whole other wormhole and you need to get into the the whole psyche of it all. It's just such a weird thing that someone thinks like, oh I'm dying I should you know I I kill John Bonet Ramsey or whatever like crime they're gonna come right. up with. Like it's just so random and bizarre. Like why do that to yourself and why do that to your family, your loved ones? Like, why confess to these crimes that you have literally nothing to do with? It's just so bizarre.
1: Yeah, that is a very strange psychological phenomenon. But, and 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 as you said, there are multiple people uh, who have allegedly had these deathbed confessions. Yeah. So then it becomes a situation where the the waters are so muddied. Like, who do you who do you believe? And and then it also yeah. comes back to evidence. Like a lot of these guys who confessed. You know, we're in different places or, you know, could not have literally could not have done it.
0: Yeah, and the fact that it was, you know, right before the holiday, it's kinda of like most people can pinpoint, you know, you'd remember, oh, you know, Uncle John wasn't at Thanksgiving that year. You you could remember that. Right. Like, um you know, everyone had like a place to be on that that next day for the most part. And nobody was reported missing, nobody didn't show up for Thanksgiving dinner that should have. Um Even McCoy, uh, who was like such a great suspect, um, he was at Thanksgiving in Utah. So it wasn't him. There's no way he gets from the middle of, you know, the Washington, Oregon forest to Utah in time for, for dinner the next day.
1: Right. (laughs) So what's your, what's your personal feeling? Uh, Do you think he was killed in, you know, in the jump or do you think he survived and just, you know, lived out the rest of his life?
0: I think it's not the most fun answer but yeah I think you know at some point he landed in some water and all all you know rivers kind of drain to the ocean and then once you're in the pacific ocean you're you're gone you're vanished you're never coming back um that's what I I think ultimately because otherwise like there was just there were so many eyes on the ground looking for this guy looking for pieces of evidence people still to this day go out and look for fragments of a parachute um and just to to come up completely empty-handed is just it just leads me to think that he he disappeared he's gone unless he or it's loki right i don't know if you watched the loki show last week
1: (laughs) yeah yeah
0: um yeah like other than supernatural explanations that that's where it lies (laughs)
1: Very good. Well, thank you so much again for coming on. Before I let you go, uh, tell people where they can stay up on top of what you're up to and, and get a copy of the book.
0: Yeah, so Escape at 10,000 Feet, and it's the first installment in an Unsolved Case Files series, uh, which is available pretty much wherever books are sold. Um, we're going into a couple international markets soon. I think there's going to be a French translation and a Swedish translation, which is pretty cool um and then the next book in the series is about the escape from alcatraz uh frank morris and the anglin brothers that comes out in september um and then the third one about the isabella Stewart gardner museum comes out uh sometime in 2022 i'm not sure when Well, i'm still writing that right now Um, and then beyond that who knows i'm hopeful to keep this thing going because it's a lot of fun just being able to spend a few months Researching the heck out of these cases, and they're so interesting. Um, and it's just been a blast. And you yeah, can find yeah. me uh online thomasgsullivan.com uh, website needs an update, but it's still there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Well, we, we definitely have to have you back on for for uh, the second season to talk about Alcatraz. So yeah, come back, I would love come back to anytime. That would be a blast. <laughs> Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. And uh, uh, really appreciate your time today.
0: All right. Thanks again, John. It's great to be here.
1: Just who was D.B. Cooper? Will we ever know the true identity of the man who 50 years later remains one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of all time? Did he survive the jump and live out the rest of his days as a free man only to take the secret to his grave? Or did he perish in the jump, his body washed away, concealing the true fate of one of the most confounding crimes of modern times? Perhaps one day additional evidence will emerge or science will provide an avenue to help crack the case. Only time will tell. I'll be back next week with a brand new mystery. And as always, thanks for listening to From the Void.